Please turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and we will read together, I will read, and you can follow along this uh, wonderful song which Mary sang, Mary who like Gabriel, or like uh, Zechariah had been visited by the angel Gabriel, and then when she went to visit her relative Elizabeth and encountered Elizabeth. Elizabeth rejoiced and the baby whom Elizabeth would give birth to in just a few short months rejoiced as well. And then Mary rejoiced. Everybody's rejoicing. What's the word that's right in the middle of rejoice? Joy. Joy. To the world, the Lord has come. And so Mary sang, and this is what she sang, verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thanks be to God for his great, great word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, be with us and help us. Be in our minds, be in our hearts, engage us in the deep places of our souls. Help us to see and even to respond as Mary did to this great, great glad news. We pray and we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. What we're doing is making our way through the songs and the poems and the prophecies that just sort of erupt and explode forth in Luke 1 and 2. I I asked you last week, encouraged you last week to read through these first two chapters and just note how much singing there is, how much poetry there is. Uh, And we're making our way through these things. Uh, Zechariah, Mary, the angels, Simeon, they all sing, and they sing... Because the silence, the silence, the long, long, painful silence, certainly the silence that Zechariah and Elizabeth endured, the silence that Israel endured for 400 years, the silence that engulfs the world, the silence is broken. The silence is finally broken. Some of you may be familiar with this painting. It's a very famous painting painting by the Norwegian painter Edvard Munch. It is an image of an almost ghost-like 
creature, a person to be sure, but a person whose face is frozen, etched in this expression of terror, this this ghost-like haunting face, and the hands are holding this face, and this face is just loaded with anxiety, with angst. That great word, angst. You know what an onomatopoeia is, right? It's, it's when a word sounds like the thing that it is. Angst. That's what you see as you look at this face. It's just permeated by it. And this, this face could be the poster child for everybody who has felt angst, fear, uncertainty, anxiety. But what's really significant about this painting, at least in the, in, in the understanding of one art historian, uh, is that there's something much more dramatic going on here. In the background in this painting, there are these three sailboats. And the masts on these sailboats, if you look at them closely, they look like rude crosses. And at least in the understanding of one art historian, the crosses are empty. Not because there was once somebody on the cross and the cross is now empty, but because there's never been a savior. There's never been someone to interrupt the silence, to break into the silence, to impale himself upon a cross and forever alter and change. And as a result of altering and changing everything, give hope to those who feel angst. That's the real understanding of at least one art historian. Edvard Munch lived in a silent universe. And the silence was crushing for him. You see, the reason there's all this singing and the reason there's all this rejoicing, the reason there's all this poetry and prophecy in Luke 1 and 2 is because the silence has been broken. Gabriel comes and Gabriel speaks to Zechariah. Gabriel comes and Gabriel speaks to Mary. Words speech that break the silence, words from God, the God who is really there, the God who spoke the worlds into existence, the God who disrupted the silence of nothingness, nothing that is apart from him, for he has always existed and there has always been singing in the fellowship of the Trinity. And it is that God who with words, creative, powerful words, brought beauty and immensity and life and joy into our existence, into physical existence. And when God's words explode onto the scene, everything begins to change. Everything begins to change. Read Job 38, verses 6 and 7. I mean, I was so struck by this this last week when, when Job finally gets the answer from God that he's been looking for. He doesn't get the answer that he wanted, but he got an answer in a series of peppering questions. 
Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? And God asks Job, where were you when the stars found their places in the heavens? Where were you? Do you understand how the foundations of the earth were laid? And then he asks Job, on what were those foundations based? What were their bases sunk into? Who laid the cornerstone of the earth when the morning stars sang together? God's words disrupt, break, silence, and the only reasonable response is to sing. That's what Mary does. She sings. Everybody sings. Now you ask, you ask why? And I, you know the answer to this. But let's drill down into that a little bit. Let's drill down into the, into the why of Mary singing. How does she get to the place where she sings? Where her natural response is to sing. Let me give you four words, four words that come out of this text that help us understand why she sings And frankly, folks, why I can sing and why you can sing in the midst of whatever fears, whatever anxieties, whatever uncertainties, whatever doubts you might be plagued by today. Four reasons, four words why you can sing. First, believed. Verse 45, it's in the verse just before the passage we read. Believed. And then the next word, looked. And the third word, done. And the fourth word, shown. Believed, verse 45. Looked, verse 48. Done, verse 48. And shown, verse 51. Four words. Why does Mary sing? Mary sings for the same reason that Israel sang at the parting of the Red Sea. Mary sings for the same reason that Israelites sang subsequently across the centuries as they reflected upon what God did at the Red Sea. I stumbled across this verse this last week. It wasn't in my Bible until this last week. It's Psalm 106, verse 12. And the context, at least the context that's being referred to, is Israel's deliverance by God at the Red Sea. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy and covered water and, and the waters covered their adversaries so that not one of them was left. And then verse 12, then they believed his words and they sang his praise. They believed his words and they sang his praise. Did you catch that? 
You probably didn't because you haven't looked at verse 45 of Luke chapter 1. But the sequence is the same. The order is the same. Here Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth greets her, verse 41. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord and Mary sang. You get the sequence? The word was spoken. Elizabeth reminded Mary of the word that was spoken, this word of promise, this word of hope that a Savior would actually come, that she would actually be the first home of that Savior. Her womb would be the first home of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And she went to visit Elizabeth, and Elizabeth reminded her of the word that came and commends her for her believing and from her believing, she erupts into song. That's Psalm 106, verse 12 in a nutshell. That's Israel at the edge of the Red Sea, having watched this calamity overwhelm the Egyptian army. That is Israel celebrating their deliverance. They saw it, they believed it, and they rejoiced. Somebody asked me this last week. We're reading this book by John Piper, Future Grace, which is subtitled something like this, The Purifying Power of the Promise of God. Yeah, I love those first two P words. The Purifying Power of the promise of God. And the question was this. How do you get the power? Where does the power come from? I mean, don't you want to be pure? Doesn't the idea of being clean, I mean, really clean. Look, we all have consciences, don't we? We all have an inside. Even though we look on Sunday morning clean on the outside, isn't there stuff in our souls that we we just know is there? Doesn't the idea of being purified, doesn't that that sound sweet? The purifying power of the promise of God. How do you get pure? Where do you get power? We talked about this for a few minutes, and I, I said, you know, But the only answer that I can give is that the thing which begins to unlock and release the cleansing, renewing, refreshing power of God is belief. Now, I wish I could hit the pause button here and just we could just stop for about 30 minutes and I could offer to you all of the disclaimers, all of the caveats, all of the cautions 
that need to be offered when something like that is said. I am not a triumphalist. I do believe in a prosperity gospel. And I believe that prosperity you get tastes of in this life, very imperfect tastes and very fleeting tastes. But if you're a Christian this morning, there is a prosperity headed your way, the full measure of which you can't even begin to imagine. So I have to offer all of those cautions and all of those caveats and yet affirm that the thing which connects me to what will cleanse me and what will enable me and what at the end of the day will elicit from me a song of praise and thanksgiving is belief, which is trust, which is saying to God against All of the voices that may be shouting in my ear saying, don't believe it, don't listen, listen to it. The voices in my heart that would resist it and say, it can't possibly be true. The thing in the midst of that is to stand in the face of all of it and say, no. It is God's word. It is his promise. It comes from him. And I, in the face of everything, will believe it. Think of Mary. Think of Mary. Think of all of the reasons that Mary could have given for resisting what was coming to her. But Elizabeth says, Blessed are you, for you have believed the word that has come to you. And what comes immediately is a song. There was another woman. Do you remember? There was another woman. A woman not born in poverty. Not born in obscurity. Not born without but a woman born in the midst of abundance and a woman born at the center of the gaze of the God who had created her. God had acted. God had spoken. God had said, it's all yours. Have at it. Delight in it. Indulge yourself in it. Enjoy it. Stay away from this because it will kill you. And another voice ended the conversation and said, you can't really trust that voice. You can't really believe that voice that says, don't touch that tree. That voice is a jealous voice. That, jo- that voice wants to withhold good from you. And she believed the lie and with her husband believed the lie and everything 
was lost. Everything was lost. Folks, I've said this to you before. That's why this is the first and the longest point. The hardest thing in the Christian life is not pedaling faster, trying harder, being better. The hardest thing in the Christian life is to hear the word of God and in the face of everything else around you, screaming in a completely different direction. The hardest thing in that setting is to believe that what God says is true. And when Mary believed it, having been commended by Elizabeth, a song exploded forth from her. Kirsten Powers is a name that some of you may know. She's a journalist, Fox News contributor, from the left. Not one of those, okay, I'm sorry, not one of, and I, okay, I'm going to make somebody mad with this one. Not one of those nauseating screechers that you get from both sides, but a person who is reasonable. (laughs) Let me read something from her testimony. I remember walking into a Bible study. I had a knot in my stomach. In my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. I don't remember what was said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside that apartment on the Upper East Side and saying to myself, it's true. It's completely true. The world looked entirely different, like a veil had been lifted off it. I had not an iota of doubt. I was filled with indescribable joy. You see the sequence? The word of God, the truth of God, believed. And the result was joy. Now she goes on to talk about the fact that she woke up the next morning horrified at the prospect of being a devout Christian. I spent the next few months doing my best to wrestle away from God. It was pointless. Everywhere I turned, there he was. Slowly, there was less fear and more joy. The hound of heaven had pursued me and caught me whether I liked it or not. But do you see the sequence? And I love that she was willing to say that it has been a struggle, and it is a struggle, and you all know that. But the point remains that when we engage and we believe, we hear and we struggle, we fight to trust that what God has said is true. Something begins to happen. 
Mary believed. Mary believed. Do you believe, folks? Not not at some cerebral level, in the depths and at the core of your being. Come and see me if you don't. Come and see me if you don't. There is a thing to be engaged, a thing to be embraced. And what flows out of it is what Kirsten Powers describes as an indescribable boredom. Sadness, grief, anxiety, fear, dread, and indescribable joy. Belief, belief, do you believe? Here's the second word, looked. Why does Mary sing? She sings first because she believed. She sings a song because she trusted. And then the reality begins to become clear. The thing begins to come into focus. Verses 46 to 49, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It all starts to come into focus. Folks, this isn't theoretical. This isn't about the cosmos. This isn't about history. This is about Mary. He has looked upon me. He has seen me. Every time I mention the knowledge of God, Barb recoils in horror because she's so afraid I'm going to go through the dog and pony show describing how multi-layered the knowledge of God is. And I'm going to use this illustration of a chessboard with 32 pieces on the chessboard and 64 squares and talk about really, really good chess players who can anticipate not only what they're going to do, but they can anticipate what the other guy is going to do. And they can so anticipate what the other guy is going to do that they can intercept what the guy is going to do and accomplish what they want to do in spite of the person who's on the other side of the table. She doesn't want to hear it anymore. She's heard it for 35 years. But here's why the knowledge of God is so important. The fact that God knows all things in all of their particular relationships to other things and in all of their potential relationships to all things that really do exist as well as in relationship to all things that might exist, that could conceivably exist in all of their potential relationships. Here's why that is important. It is important because the knowledge of God is not simply an accumulation of information about the state of reality or its potential state. A theologian a long time ago reminded me, and I think you've heard me say this before, that the knowledge of God is not distracted. And what that means is this, that God, in the midst of knowing all that he knows, is able to look upon a particular woman. A particular woman. And isn't it comforting to you? Isn't it encouraging to you that that particular woman lived in obscurity, 
lived in a culture in which women were effectively without power, without rights. She was a poor woman from no place. Can anything good come from Nazareth? She was engaged to a man without degrees, without name, without influence. She is now facing shame and ridicule because she is pregnant before her wedding day. It is scandalous and she should be executed, which is why Joseph was going to send her away. And God sees her personally and individually. Just like he saw Hagar when Hagar in Genesis 16 was going to let her son die. Just like she, he saw Hannah when Hannah cried out for him repeatedly to look upon her and see her just as Elizabeth had cried out and called out for God to hear her. You ever wonder, what was God paying attention to when he was paying attention to Elizabeth? Right? I mean, you think, if he's paying attention to me, he can't be paying attention to her. Ah. But don't you see, that's the beauty, the magnificence, the delightfulness, the deep comfort of the knowledge of God. That is a thing that comes. It is part and parcel of what we affirm when we say that God is infinite, touching his being, touching his knowledge, touching his mercy, touching his love, touching his goodness. He is limitless in his capacities. People in our day who think that the idea of God is foolishness are forfeiting something of great comfort and hope. This great God is mindful of individuals, of persons. So I was thinking about this this morning, writing this sermon. I thought about, I thought about a Ruth, a Ruth who was a woman in Tanzania in the village of Masanono, who for years prayed that she could have water so her children could be clean. And here, halfway around the world, because of the gifts of a small handful of people in this community, she has water and her children can be clean. Why? Because while God was thinking about us in 2006, he was thinking about her. While God was mindful of you in 2003, he was mindful of her. While God was mindful of you in 1991, he was mindful of her. Because in his infinite capacity to pay attention to particular people, he shows mercy. He has seen me. He knows me. And then the third word and the fourth word. He has shown 
and he has done. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has done. Folks, let's let's cut to the chase here. Let's, Let's apply this without even talking about Mary just briefly. Think about it in the midst of doubts and uncertainties and things that plague us, very real fears and anxieties. I understand that. I get that. I wear that stuff like a gown. But in the midst of it, how do you deal with it? How did Mary deal with her uncertainties? Mary dealt with it by contemplating what God had done. What has God done for you, my friends? What has God done for you? I recall with vivid clarity as a freshman student, Christian for about 18 months, reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and all of that stuff about election and predestination. And frankly, I didn't have a hiccup. It didn't cause me to stumble. I didn't have a problem with it. I got to the end of verse 10 or 11 or something like that, and tears were streaming down my face, and all I could say was, me? Me? You loved me in Christ before the foundation of the world? You chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world? You you have determined before the foundation of the world that I should stand before you holy and blameless as your son? This is a guy, I say it with respect, who never really had a dad. And you're telling me that you've loved me all that time so that I can finally have a dad? Me? Frankly, folks... I didn't care about the other six billion people on the planet at that particular moment. He had done this for me. Do you think about and contemplate and reflect upon as Mary did what God has done? And then there's this showing business. He has shown strength. He scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. Folks, it's those verses that gave me the title to the sermon. Come on, Mary, are you kidding? In less than two years, Herod is going to exterminate every child under two years of age in the city of Bethlehem. It doesn't sound like the mighty are brought low. In a little over 30 years, people are going to conspire together against your son, Mary, and kill him. That doesn't sound like the mighty are being brought low. But you see, here's what happens for Mary, and it's what happens for us as Christians. We don't look at the things we can see. We don't see what can be seen. 
we see what is immeasurably more real. And that is, my friends, that the day is coming when what Mary expresses as a past tense thing will become a present tense reality. That is how shaped she is. Not by the first advent of Christ, but by the second advent of her son who will return the God-man clothed in glory to subdue all of his and her and your enemies. That's why Mary sings. She sings because she's believed something. And once she's believed something, she begins to see what God has done for her. She begins to see that he has focused his attention upon her. He knows her. He sees her. And she begins to see this event, the coming of this Savior, in light of the totality of human history. He will come again and he will continue to dethrone and destroy all of his enemies and hers. And that's why she sings. Folks, I've got to close with this illustration. It's a wonderful illustration. It's from a book about the gospel. You know, there are songs about the gospel, and there are books about the gospel, and the songs don't say they're about the gospel, and the books don't say they're about the gospel, but they're about the gospel. And this one, don't laugh at me, this one is the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And if you see the old Charles Lawton version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, you will see ugly, deformed Kazimoto swinging down from the buttresses of the church to rescue and deliver his beloved. Ugly, deformed. He had no appearance that we should delight in him. Swinging down from the buttresses, the lofty escarpments of heaven to collect his bride, the one whom he loves, and to take her to a place of safety. Ooh, what does that sound like? And when Cosimodo carries Esmeralda back up onto that escarpment and lodges her safely in the church where she has sanctuary from every evil that would harm her, All of the gypsies in the street throw their hats in the air and erupt in praise and song. That's the gospel, my friends. And that's why we sing at this Easter. So let me invite you to do that. Let me pray for us. And then let me invite you to stand and sing this wonderful carol number 221. Lo, how a rose, air blooming. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, thank you. 